Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the latest episode of the All Sport 70 podcast. Uh, All Sport is 70 years old and we've taken on the challenge of picking out some of the greatest racing cars of uh, and competition cars of particular categories. Uh, and this episode is junior single seaters. I'm not going to pretend that I'm an expert in this field, uh, but I do have two very special guests that will help us through the many, many uh, different candidates we've got for this. Uh, I'm Chief Editor of All Sport, Kevin Turner, and my first guest is someone who's driven some of these cars, reported on many of them. Um, and he's a fan, I'm sure, of many of them as well. Uh, Marcus Pye, who's also been working for All Sport for over 40 years. So you definitely had to be on one of these podcasts, Marcus. Um, how, how are you doing? Yeah, good evening, Kev. Yeah, very good, thank you. Um, weathering the lockdown. And um, as you can see, I'm surrounded by old Autosport back numbers. So uh, there's always plenty to read if I'm at a loose end. It is a very impressive sight. Mine are all sort of stacked up behind me. You can't see, but it's nothing like as impressive as... Uh, Impressive a collection. You've got every single issue, haven't you? I do, back to um, August 1950. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm quite sad like that. But um, in, in a house full of girls, um, I am the, the major enthusiast for them as well as the major <laughs> contributor. <laughs> uh, fantastic. Um, and uh, second guest is another Marcus, Marcus Simmons, who doesn't have a load of all sports behind him, but does have a, a lot of uh, interest and knowledge about junior single seaters, particularly in the, the current era, despite the fact he's our British touring car correspondent. I think it's probably fair to say that, that junior single seaters are probably your first love. Is that fair, Marcus? Oh, yeah. As soon as uh, I'm, I'm going to touring car races, as you've said this year, but as soon as uh, 
as soon as the British F4 cars are on the track, I'm there at the window or the fence uh, to, to watch what's going on. So always fascinated with watching the um, early stages of the careers of young talent um, coming through and, and seeing, seeing who uh, is going to be a superstar of the future. And that's something I've always loved doing since I was a kid, actually, in, a, in the 1970s. And I was going to uh, race meetings with my dad. I must say, both both my guests this, this uh, in this episode have got a good track record of picking out rising stars, um, which could probably be a podcast of its own, actually. Um, but we should probably uh, probably get started on on the cars and um, the main criteria: how successful they were, how they changed the game, and um, the sort of get out of jail free card, which is the fever rating, how, how cool we think the cars are. Um, I'm going to start with a car that's the opposite to the normal sort of cars that I, I enjoy, which is big, powerful, hairy GT cars and sports cars normally. Um, but it's a very uh, important category, really. Um, 500cc Formula 3, which I suppose almost invented junior single-seater racing, really. Um, the Cooper Jap really being the, the combination that uh, worked the best. What, what, Marcus Pye, 500ccs, the Cooper Jap, where does that stand? It's, it's got to be, it's almost Genesis, isn't it? Well, kind of, yeah. Back back in the uh, immediate um, post World War Two years, there was fuel rationing. There wasn't much opportunity to go uh, car racing, and um, a bunch of enthusiasts down in Bristol, basically building around the um, Bristol Aircraft Company's uh, motorsport sort of uh, group, the club there, um, founded a class using 500cc motorcycle engines, effectively, and um, very very simple spindly tubular chassis um there were lots of one-offs but but charles and john cooper father and son in surbiton uh, seized the um seized the day really and they decided to um basically link two sets of fiat topolino suspension uh with their tubular frame and thus the cooper 500 was born and at the back of the 1940s um the young um, sterling moss uh, was a bit of a star and he went and competed in hill climbs and then of course won the um, 500cc race at the very first Goodwood meeting in September 1948 and these cars evolved and into the early 50s um, by the time they got to the Cooper Mark 4 and Cooper Mark 5 they were producing them in um, in larger numbers for general sales so really they were responsible for the birth of the British uh, racing car industry and Several hundred of these cars were made really well all the way through the 1950s. Um, and what was extraordinary, they, they were mainly powered by the little Jap engine to start with, but then the, uh, the double knocker Norton came in, which was much stronger. So therefore you had a, uh, a junior and a senior uh, kind of level of class. The Nortons obviously dominated towards the end. Um, the real star that came through was Jim Russell, who won the, um, the Autosport Sponsored Championship Fund, enough three times running. Um, and of course, he went on to pioneer uh, racing schools. But the early um, Coopers, um, some of the things like the Cooper Mark V, the little stickleback tails were fantastic. And they actually competed in international Grand Prix. Some of them ran in sort of Formula Two type races with bigger engines. But um, Alan Brown for a Curie Richmond won the 1951 Luxembourg Grand Prix uh, in a Cooper Mark V, um, a car that I was privileged to hill climb, uh, albeit with a Jap engine um a long time later back in the early 90s but great things and uh some of those races i mean there were 100 mile races 
uh, at Silverstone. So um, involving refueling and all kinds of things, which I mean is is beggar's belief really. But um, they were pretty pretty amazing things. They were pretty recalcitrant, and they still have a very strong following today um, around Europe. They raced in the states, of course, as well. Um, and you know, it it was the early Formula Three racing. It was adopted by the equivalent of the FIA. Uh, became Formula 3 racing in the 50s um, and until the advent of Count Johnny Lurani's Formula Junior um, towards the end of the 50s was the kind of stepping stone for um, young stars on both sides of the Atlantic. I think it's importance um, in well not just junior um, junior motor racing but obviously it set the template for Cooper to go Grand Prix racing and changing the face of Formula 1 as well. Um, but Mark Simmons, I guess the question is, does it does it tick the fever, the fever rating compared to some of the cars that are going to come later? I'm struggling slightly with the spectacle factor for these cars, even though I respect their place in, in motorsport history. Do you think that's fair or do you think we should take these through to the final? Yeah, I, I, I'm going to have to com completely bow down to the other Marcus here because that's a, an era of racing I know very little about. Um, but what I would like to, uh, to add possibly is just the, um, the, the context of the time. Um, what, what I love about 500cc Formula 3, um, as Marcus mentioned, it, it was a completely organic uh, thing that happened. There, there was no governing body saying, these are the regulations, this is what you're gonna do. It was a bunch of enthusiasts um, getting together because it made sense at the time with the materials people had. And, and from that, um, a great form of racing was born. Uh, and also it completely democratized the sport as well because um, you know, going back to the pre-war years, it was very much a, a rich man's sport. But, um, but <clears throat> the 500cc Formula 3 era, um, really brought it within reach of a lot more people as far as participation was concerned. So um, I would go along with you, Kevin, to say uh, not much of a spectacle by the standards of what has come since. But I bet if you were standing on the bank at Brands Hatch running anti-clockwise in the early 1950s and watching <laughs> these intrepid drivers in their 500cc F3 cars, I bet it was absolutely brilliant. But it was, you know, watching uh, watching people who made their own one-offs, people like Reg Bicknell with the Revis with its full body. I mean, he was um, he was flung out of it in um, uh, a Brands Hatch, as you say, running the other way behind what is now the pits. Um, but it was, it was a, for the day. It was what was there. It was what provided um, the opportunity for the um, the guys like Moss to sort of cut their teeth. Um, some really fantastic drivers came through, um, not just Jim Russell, but people like Stuart Lewis Evans, Don Parker. Uh, they were really, really quick. Um, and what, as, as, as the other Marcus was saying, what was interesting about the regulations, the regulations were pretty vague uh, in a way. Uh, and so there were front engine cars with front wheel drive. Um, there were uh, cars that were uh, about the size of about, about, I don't know, about, about six feet long. Uh, which had engines and drivers pretty much sort of mishmashed in the middle, which was fairly scary. That things like the Monaco, which George Hartwell drove. Um, but the Coopers were pretty special. It was Coopers versus Keefts really pretty much at the front. The Coopers were the dominant force in a way. They made more cars. Uh, they were stronger. And uh, the when they got to the things, things like the Cooper Mark 9, 
which was pretty iconic, um, they were they were pretty fabulous. And of course, remember also they were fueling the aspirations of guys in in the hill climb championships. And um, people won the you know the hill climb championship through the latter part of the fifties when it went away from the traditional kind of ERAs and things like that, which were pre-war um, leftovers in a way. Um, they became the go-to uh, go-to car for that as well, and they sustained um, speed hill climbing with 500s and later the V-twin engines um, till the early part of the 1960s. So yeah, I think there's a there's a case for the Cooper 500, um, an iconic car of its era, that's for sure, and that's kind of what it's all about. Yeah, I think maybe we're we're sort of saying it's one of the greatest categories, perhaps, of which that was the best, rather than a, a particular car. To, that, that's right. To it pick. went on from yeah, yeah. five hundred Formula Three movement to Formula Junior to one liter Formula Three, the Screamer era. It, it evolved, and it kind of it is what it is. It was what it was. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you mentioned there Formula Junior, so we've. We've got, uh, I think, two cars we can talk about here and pick out perhaps which which is the greatest Formula Junior, and then and then discuss whether that should go through to to, to the final. The the one that, that sort of jumps out most obviously is the Lotus Twenty Two. Um, um, Peter Arundel dominated nineteen sixty two season. It's probably the car that, that that most most comes to mind for Formula Junior. But I know that that, that Marcus, you suggested that the Brabham BT Six as well as a, as a good alternative. So, what are the sort of merits of those of those two in this competition? Well, I mean, both of those cars were were excellent cars. Um, the Lotus Twenty Two um, had been evolved from the previous year's Lotus Twenty. It had uh, a better specification. Um, it had better brakes. It had disc brakes all round. It had the engine canted over uh, to lower the body line. Uh, which, of course, you remember the Lotus 18 in 1960 that Jim Clark won at, um, at Goodwood in his first major single-seater uh, win. Uh, that was kind of like a flying coffin. It was a big, square-cut, chunky thing. By the time they'd got to the 22, um, it was a much, much lower, um, very much a baby Grand Prix car. I know that the 18 served as both, but this looked like the, the, the real state-of-the-art uh, deal. Um, of course, Lotus went on to a monocoque car, a full unitary uh, construction chassis of the 27, uh, which was quite expensive to make. It was complicated to run in comparison, difficult to fix in the field. Um, and in 63, the final year of Formula Junior, the Brabham BT6 came on song. One of the classic early cars from Ron Toronax, um, drawing board, Ron, who, who died very recently, aged, what, 95. Um, quite extraordinary. And... Um, that was the foundation of the of the Brabham uh, production car mark. Really, they'd started with the one-off MRD, gone on to the Brabham uh, BT2 uh, in in '62, and then ultimately the BT6, which was a, a really fantastic car. And the likes of Frank Gardner and Danny Holman Co were driving them, and they were absolutely superb. Now, am I right in saying that the Lotus 22 sort of formed the basis for subsequent models, including the 51? which I guess would have to be considered pretty important as a Formula Ford Genesis. So does that perhaps, perhaps, uh, perhaps throw this to other markers, does that, as a Formula Ford fan, does that, does that perhaps throw the Lotus 22 slash uh, 51 in, into the sort of advantage in that debate? Um, again, you're uh, talking about an era that's a little bit early for me. Um, so uh, obviously if, if there, if there is a, a family um, connection between the 22 and the 51. 
I'd say that is pretty important um, because clearly Formula Ford became um, the greatest, arguably the greatest junior single-seater category of them all. Although the Lotus 51 wasn't really the car to have for very long in that, um, it evolved very quickly. Um, what I'd just just um, from a uh, the the context of um, of Ron Toronac and Brabham and uh, and then um, after that Rolt, I would potentially uh, favour the BT6 if if only because um, Brabham became in the late 1960s the the kings of customer racing cars and then uh, Ron Toronac obviously carried that on from the mid 70s onwards with Rolt and uh, yeah, <clears throat> the cars that he designed were renowned for being uh, fairly simple, fairly easy to work on, uh, workmanlike, uh, nothing fancy, just really well designed. Um, but uh, but again, that's just my thinking about an era I don't know much about. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right, uh, Marcus. I think um, that both have their merits. There were obviously many, many um, Lotus uh, 22s um, and some of the 20s, many of the 20s were updated to 22 spec as well. Um, and that was the strength of Lotus. It could turn out um, a lot of cars. It, it farmed out its chassis manufacture uh, and were putting a lot of cars out there on the market. They filtered down the food chain. A lot of privateers got them as well. The 22 was a, a really, really good privateer car. Um, but the, um, the Brabham, conversely, uh, was better built. Um, it was a more rigid chassis, uh, etc. And as you say, um, Torrenite was an absolute genius. He, he was a real good foil to Jack Brabham in that mark um, because he, well, they were both really, really pragmatic guys. I mean, Jack Brabham was a very, very fine uh, mechanic and a car builder as well as a superb driver. Um, and, um, and Ron Torrenite was just a genius at the drawing board because he could envision things and as you saw and as you mentioned the Rolt um, progression through that I mean just look at how different uh, a space frame car was and he built his first car back then in, in Australia in the 50s but um, moving from there to something like a Rolt RT3 which we'll discuss later on um, and, and just moving with the times and staying ahead of the times more importantly uh, made him a massive force in the marketplace and you know the Brabham was a fantastic car without doubt uh, the more complete car but the Lotus did go on through the lineage of the 31 and 41 Formula 3 cars to make the first 51s um, and kick off Formula Ford racing in 67 as you say. So, Marcus Pye, I'm going to ask, I'm going to, I reckon Formula Junior cars should go through. Some of the most amazing races I've seen have been Formula Junior races. And I can say that as someone, as I say, who, who wouldn't normally magnetically go towards the, the smaller single-seater. So which one of those would you like to put through to the final discussion, the, the Lotus 22 or the, or the BT6? I think both have the merits, as I say, but I think the Brabham is probably the better car, but there were fewer of them and, and weight of numbers um, helped uh, Lotus in, in, in both uh, the last years against the BT2s and the BT6s. I think probably, as you say, the, the Brabham was a more complete car, uh, the Lotus was more plentiful. Um, I'd probably go with the Brabham if I was choosing one. Fantastic. Right, that goes through then. So we're, we're going to jump forward a, a little bit in time. We'll probably come back a little bit later. Um, but I think this uh, this is more into your territory, Marcus Simmons, the March 782. Oh, yeah. 
Formula Two, European Formula Two Championship. Tell me about the uh, tell us about the impressiveness of the the seven eight two in particular. Obviously, March had a lot of successful junior single seaters at that time. Seems a bit daft to call it a Formula Two car at that point, junior. Um, but we really mean just sort of uh, ladder, don't we? Uh, sub F one, really. So yeah, the seven eight two incredibly dominant car in its uh, in its its first year. Yeah, um, completely. And and you're right because um, uh, calling it junior single seaters is a bit of a misnomer because obviously um, in the 1970s <clears throat> we still had Formula One drivers uh, doing Formula Two races, not in as great anywhere near as great numbers as they had done in the 1960s. But um, that's um, it's an era that uh, that I, I grew up uh, watching racing, and um, it was always very very colourful uh very exotic it seemed yeah you know, because you you went to race meetings in the uk and it was it was generally british people racing their cars but then uh, the easter thruxton event uh you would have um the top formula one talent from around europe uh drivers who had won their Formula Three championships at home and were visiting Thruxton for the first time. Some of these names, like um, uh, say Maurizio Flamini or Jean-Pierre Jabouy, or um, they were they were drivers that we didn't really know anything about until we saw them in Formula Two. Um, the the March seven eight two, um, I thought was the last great customer car of the Formula Two era. Um, and it wasn't just a great customer car because the works team dominated that year as well with um, Bruno Giacomelli winning the championship and Mark Sura in, in second place. Um, but um, there were there were large numbers of 782s, generally powered by the BMW engine, although the Hart engine was uh, was also competitive. And, um, and actually the 782 also stayed competitive into 79 because um, Rad Dougal in the... Uh, with the Tolman team uh, racing the year-old March 782 won the Easter Thruxton race. So um, I just think the lines on that car are absolutely gorgeous as well. And uh, and you know what an aficionado of that era of F2 cars I am because the slightest excuse I'm trying to shoehorn a picture from that era into Autosport magazine. <laughs> so, uh, But the 782, I just thought, uh, beautiful car. Um, had lots of good drivers in it, um, and probably the the um, absolute peak of um, an excellent customer racing car for Formula Two. Marcus Pye, would you be happy as the seven eight two to be the representative of, a, of the sort of golden era of European Formula Two racing? Couldn't agree more, Kev. Um, absolutely, I echo everything that that um, Marcus has said. Uh, Without doubt, the March 782 was the greatest car that March produced. It was the greatest customer Formula 2 car. Uh, it won nine of the 12 um, races in European Championship that year, eight with Bruno Giacomelli, uh, and won the fantastic race at the Nürburgring uh, with Alex Ribeiro in the, in the Jesus Saves car. Um, they made towards 30 of them. Uh, they're still hallowed today. Um, Everything about them was right. It had a, a much, um, it had a narrower, stiffer, slab-sided tub than the um, 772 and 772Ps that went before. Um, 
the aerodynamics were very, very good. That wide nose that was very redolent of, of marches from about 73 was evolved. It was lower, it was flatter, it was wider. It flicked the air over the front wheels very successfully and then, of course, guided them over the back as well, which made the car very quick in a straight line. Um, they were easy to run. They were very, very responsive. Uh, and particularly with the BMW um, M12 7 engine in the back of it, making you know, towards 300 horsepower, um, made it a car which would have qualified very easily for the back of, well, not even the back, somewhere towards the middle uh, of Formula One grids of the day in the right hands. So, yeah, I mean, it's one of my favourite three cars of all time. So um, I, I'm, I'm a little bit sort of, a um, little bit blinker, a little bit looking through rose-tinted spectacles, perhaps, but... Um, I think the, the weight of evidence uh, supports the March 782 as one of the greatest uh, junior uh, single-seater cars of all time, without doubt, definitely. Well, that's a very easy immediately through to the final decision there. But I think the next one we could talk about probably has got a quite strong claim as well. You mentioned it already, um, uh, Marcus, the Raw RT3, so ground effects, had a long period of success as well for a car during a, a still you know multi-mate racing was still a thing uh in the in the in the lower levels at that point so yeah the rt3 does that sort of stand out as the, the sort of the formula three car it, it's interesting isn't it because i mean for formula three had been a two-liter formula since 1974 there was that short interlude between the screamers the three-year interlude of 1600 cars that were lovely things but but actually not very quick in the real world um the two years came on board and as the decade progressed you saw fantastic uh intermark battling uh, march roll chevron argo and others um anson came into the fray and uh, some european marks as well um but the the rt3 changed the rules of engagement uh, mind you um it, it didn't do that immediately. It was actually not particularly great to start with. They struggled to understand it because it was so different. Um, it, it had the the Formula One style wing car kind of concept uh, where you were trying to keep the air out from under the car and you were sort of trying to make it go around corners incredibly quickly with, uh, with, with downforce. Um, Bear in mind, you've only got 165 horsepower or something like that from an air-restricted 24mm uh, engine uh, in those days. Um, and therefore, you had a fair amount of drag with it to start with, but it had to be trimmed very, very carefully. And really, it was down to, I mean, I think Alicio Salazar was one of the first guys to drive an RT3, um, struggle with it, maybe predictably. Um, and then Rob Wilson... Uh, knuckled down with Ron Toronac and uh, Jack Bonfield of Bondent. They went testing a lot and they really got it sorted out well. So really by the end of 1980, when you had the fabulous battle that, uh, that Marcus Simmons remembers, of course, for the championship um, between Stephanie Hansen, Kenneth Acheson uh, and Roberto Guerrero, uh, the first two in marches for most of the season, Guerrero in the works Argo, uh, JM6, another great car. Um, that the role was the best option at the end. And, and Stephanie Hansen got one uh, with the, the Dick Bennett's run, um, Project 14, wasn't it, at that point? Or was it Project 3, you tell me? It was, it was Project 4. Yeah. Um, and, um, and Atchison could have had one as well, but he decided to stay with what uh, he had uh, and lost out at the very, very end. But it was incredibly close run. Um, the RC3 is one of those 
cars that went on for years. Uh, it, it say it really altered Formula Three. Um, it came in league later on with the the, the VW, uh, the the Brabham Judd uh, engine, which was a, a narrow, uh, lightweight uh, two-liter engine. Um, unlike the big Toyotas, I mean, the, the Toyota um, 2TG that ran from '74 was a um, a heavy um, lump of a thing developed by Nova Motor very well. Uh, big twin cam engine, but the, the single cam VW engine fitted beautifully into that package uh, of the Rolt. Um, yes, some Rolts had Alphas as well, uh, and there were probably one or two other options in the in in the Far East, but. Um, it was a, uh, a mighty tool and went on for what, right through to kind of 84, didn't it? At the end of the ground effect era of, um, of Formula 3, uh, before the flat bottom cars came in in 85. And you'll remember all that very well, Marcus. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, uh, you know, the RT3 carried on with the, the same fundamental design, didn't it? But with minor updates year by year. And the, the car that... Um, Stefan Johansson used for the last few races of 1980 to win the championship, um, of course, was was kept by Project 4 team manager Dick Bennett, who uh, who at that point was reporting to Ron Dennis. Um, and um, and then uh, West Surrey Engineering was born uh, with Jonathan Palmer driving the same car the year after, and he won the championship again. Um, West Surrey Engineering became West Surrey Racing. And, uh, ran Ayrton Senna to the championship in 83, of course. But, um, mm. and, it's interesting, but it, isn't it? Because the, the RT3 started out as a fairly um, robust thing with, with heavy rocker front suspension and it evolved into something with um, pushrod suspension. And it was much kind of more refined by the end of it as they got to know more about it. But it remained at the, at the top of the tree, didn't it? It, it did, yeah. And even, um, you know, not just... Not just in the UK either, where it, it completely dominated, bar uh, little cameo appearances from the likes of Magnum and Nansen, but but uh, but in Europe as well, where you had Martini and Delara, um, it was winning the European Championship in '83 with an Alpha engine in the in the hands of Pierluigi Martini. And the only thing that really stopped the RT3 was the complete new rule set for '85, where ground effects was out, flat bottoms were in. Um, although having said that, there was there was still a a flat bottom kit for the RT3 in 85, I seem to remember. And it That's right, absolutely. Carried yeah. on in a few, uh, with a few brave teams. It uh, wasn't, some, it and, wasn't just one, uh, one flat bottom kit. It was, it was developed by a number of different sources. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, it, it was okay. Um, of course, the Reynard came in that year as well, the carbon fibre uh, monocoque Reynard. Uh, and, and the role of the time was really strange, wasn't it? The RT30 when it first appeared, because it had asymmetric side pods. It had a low one one side and a high one the other with the radiator in it, uh, which looked um, uh, just a bit odd. I, I thought it was the racing car equivalent of Phil Oakey from the Human League's hair, actually, with the, <laughs> the asymmetric side pods. But without, but without the piercing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, it did look weird, and it was soon dropped, wasn't it, for the... Uh, yep. For, for uh, 86 and onwards but uh, yeah the the RT3 I I really love the RT3 um the only thing I've got against it is that I don't think it's as attractive to look at as the marches chevrons argos etc that that came before and and uh, and it completely uh, 
well, almost completely destroyed the multi-mark competition. Exactly. Uh, but I think what we liked, wasn't it, in, in up to 1980, mm -hmm. you did see uh, those very different looking cars. And there were, a, say, a few others, things like the, the Derricks and things like that in, uh, in, in Germany with little wheels, uh, the Bose Derricks team car. Um, I think we remember very romantically that kind of era uh, of multi-mark thing when teams could get it wrong, um, drivers um, could go the wrong way and, and actually have their ability masked by a car that was inferior. Um, but you know, I'm not a I'm not a fan of one make racing. So uh, you know, perhaps it, perhaps the RT3 was the catalyst for that. Well, I think that's going to that, that could become the crux of a bit of our debate later on. I think this uh, multi-mate versus versus one mate. Um, but I'm I think on sheer sheer level of success, the drivers it helped launch, uh, and obviously the ground effect. Um, and any car that I think effectively has to be banned because it's too good, I think really has to be considered pretty seriously. So I'm very happy to put the RT3 straight through to the final. Um, but the next three cars we're going to talk about, we're going to have to pick one. Uh, because um, I think if we were having a debate about the greatest junior single-seater category of all time, I think you'd have a hard job not coming up with Formula Ford um, in terms of its longevity, drivers it launched, all the cars, the quality of the racing. Um, and we've we've got a list of, th of three candidates, I think, for the best Formula Four, the greatest Formula Four: the, the Swift DB1, the Van Diemen RF80, and the Van Diemen RF90. Now the RF90 is probably the most famous Formula Ford sort of stealth bomber. I think that's that's probably what most. I mean, they're still very successful in Kent Kent races now. They've um, they, they've taken the fight to much later cars, um, so that's perhaps why that comes to mind. But but uh, Marcus Pye, you, you you threw in the, the Swift and the RF80. So what, where do you see the, the strengths and weaknesses of those three cars? I, I think the RF80 was an interesting car because it took the, the Dave Baldwin concept of the 77-78 onto another level. Uh, it became very successful. If you look at classic Formula Ford now, everyone wants a, a Van Diemen RF80. Um, I did my first Formula Ford races in an RF80, which was absolutely fantastic, and then found out that it started out life as Tom Wood's RF78 and just got updated. Uh, but it was a, a superb car. Um, they're well made. Uh, they are quick through the air. They are uh, robust. Um, and I think that's very important when it comes particularly to privateers running the cars. I mean, you had a works team, you, you threw corners at it left, right and centre. But um, uh, if you were uh, slaving away, toiling away as a weekend warrior in your garage after work, uh, a car that was easy to maintain and, and had a strong chassis was uh, a good thing. Some great drivers came through with them, of course, and, um, uh, and Marcus sort of probably was uh, around it as often, if not more often than, than, than I was at that point. Tell us a little bit more about RF80s or that kind of era of Formula Ford racing. Because again, it was a a massive multi-mark um, show, showcase, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it was. Um, yeah, I, I think you're probably better positioned, Marcus, to uh, to come up with a, a figure of number of constructors that were around at the time. But I, well, Formula Four overall, uh, somewhere around 260, I've got to on a list. Uh, from one-offs and, and, and cars that were from a previous era that were modified into Formula Ford cars to, um, you know, to, to cars that were produced in their hundreds. Um, and bear in mind that Van Diemen had produced its thousandth race car by, uh, by 1985. 
having started in building them in, in 73 or for the 73 season. Um, you look at them making more than 100 a year, Crosley making more than 100 a year, lots of Lolas, lots of Royales, etc. And in the States, there were uh, marks over there doing pretty well as well. So, you know, there are literally thousands of Formula Ford cars. So it's a, it's a deep pot to stir. Um, but of course, the cream rises to the top. And RF80, a really great car, probably the best design uh, of any of them, though, was the Swift DB1, um, designed by the great David Bruns uh, in the States, uh, made in California. And when that car appeared for the first time at the 1983 um, SCCA, Sports Car Club of America, uh, National Championship runoffs, um, which is the sort of the, the, the melting pot for all um, kind of club racing uh, in the States and people, drivers qualify from the different regions all around uh, North America to earn the right to go there for this shootout. And then <laughs> Swift turned up with this car that looked like a spaceship. It's absolutely unbelievable. The DB1 with um, with the kind of high-sided um, bodywork, air intakes around the driver's hips. Uh, but the most significant thing of it, apart from an ultra-stiff, ultra-narrow chassis, was the, um, the aluminium uh, bell housing, which linked the engine to the gearbox that contained the oil tank. And of course, this pushed uh, the weight distribution of the car in a different way. The driver's feet actually were threaded through the front suspension, um, so they were ahead of the uh, front uprights, etc. But the aero of it was sensational. Um, the car looked a million bucks, and R.K. Smith, who was not in his first flush of youth, but was involved in the, um, uh, in, in the Swift uh, company, absolutely blitzed it, left everyone else just scratching their heads. As a result, hundreds of Swift DB1s were made, and uh, they remain hugely sought after cars uh, now. What I think is interesting is that the regulations uh, fairly quickly changed um, and the driver's um, feet had to be behind the front axle line uh, for uh, all the cars within a couple of years. Uh, and that made it very difficult for the others to keep up because the Swifts were still there in huge numbers with these inbuilt ergonomic perhaps um, advantages, dynamic advantages, um, and everyone else had to kind of work around it because the, the fundamental balance of the cars were changed by bringing the driver back within the wheelbase, so to speak. Um, but the DB1, I just think, is an awesome car. Uh, and of course, it spawned the, um, uh, the Van Diemen uh, 85. Van Diemen was already, already committed to building perhaps its worst Formula Ford car since about the 75 or 76. Um, and at that stage, those Van Diemen's were still kind of loosely based on Lotus 69s. But um, when it came to the Swift blowing everything out, out of the water, they were stuffed because they um, produced, they knew they were stuffed as soon as they saw it, but they produced the, um, the RF84, the pterodactyl, uh, as it was sort of kind of known in its day, which had pull rod front suspension, uh, rocker, narrow rocker rear, um, half a kind of dustbin of a fuel tank nailed to the driver's shoulders uh, and it just was a bizarre thing. It, it looked kind of okay in Formula Ford 2000 guys maybe by the time you put some fatter wheels and some wings out to balance the curious looks out but um, it was pretty hopeless and so when the RF 
1985 arrived, the car which took Van Diemen past its thousandth uh, race car mark, um, it was kind of a very nicely repackaged Swift DB1, uh, if you like, uh, with the big uh, bell housing in the back and the oil tank and all the advantages. Um, and again, it proved to be a classic car, but it, it had missed the boat. Van Diemen had missed the boat for, for once, and very, very rarely does Ralph, did Ralph Furman or Dave Baldwin um, fall into that uh, trap. But um, very, very interesting. And but they counted as the years went by. And the other car we talked about was the RF90, um, which was an amazing piece of kit. And it had so much mechanical grip. I remember the first time I drove one, you sort of sat upright, almost in a sort of armchair kind of position in the middle of it. And it just rocketed around corners. It was an amazing piece of kit. And um, the, the cars that followed for the next couple of years were very much based on that, albeit with modified suspension and different, uh, different shock absorbers and 1.0 shock on, I think, on the, 80, uh, on the 92 uh, front end. But um, it really forced uh, some very, very deep thinking, that, that Swift DB1 concept that was still winning in the States, still is now. Um, it forced some deep thinking up in Norfolk and uh, uh, Ralph Furman and, and uh, Dave Baldwin, resourceful people, um, they uh, kind of took a very, very close look, shall we say, uh, at the DB1, came up with their own kind of version and went on uh, with that. And of course, the UK Swifts uh, were not that dissimilar to kind of repackage the SC92, which is a good car, was kind of a repackaged Van Diemen uh, RF91. They all looked at each other, um, just as in Formula One, where uh, everyone looked at the Williams FW07, or everyone looked at Lotus 79. Williams came up with a fantastic package. Um, and then, you know, everyone else looked to do the same thing. And I remember Lotus 79 being a pretty dominant car in 78. Um, and because the Tyrrell 009 sort of came out at that point, um, Burago, the Italian company Burago's model um, of the Tyrrell was a Lotus 79, but painted blue, because actually no one would have known any difference from the outside. I mean, detailing was very different, but you wouldn't have known that in a model that's sort of a kind of one thirty-second scale or something like that. So uh, everyone copied each other. They're all looking. They were all sort of looking for that advantage. Um, and in Formula Ford, which was a very trend-led market um, cars results at things like the Formula Ford Festival at the end of October very much dictated where the spend was going to be for the following year um, and that, um, that stealth bomber Van Diemen the, um, uh, the RF90 uh, was a, a sensational tool and uh, did them very well. It, it, it was an amazing car wasn't it I think um, by the late 1980s it was it was really the um, the latest Reynards that were um, that were definitely uh, very successful and perhaps worrying Van Diemen and um, and that RF ninety uh, was a, a vast um, improvement for the last era of uh, last few years of the Kent era. But um, what uh, it, it kind of passed us by a little bit in the UK at the time, I think, because um, because Formula Ford on a national level, on a British Championship level, was at an all-time low uh, for 1990. I remember going to one round, it had five cars on the grid. Um, <laughs> um, junior Formula Ford sort of held up okay that year, but of course Renault, Renault UK had been making a big push um, to establish 
Formula Renault in in uh, in this country. And Van Diemen was also making the Formula Vauxhall Juniors, wasn't it? Of course, yeah. Um, but um, rooted marketplace, as we've seen many times before. <laughs> but yeah, so so um, Formula Ford really suffered at that point, and it did bounce back um, a little bit for '91 and '92, and we got some. Uh, yeah, we had by that stage we had Jamie Spence and Jan Magnussen and drivers of that caliber coming through. But um, so. Um, so the so the ninety, it, it's almost in my mind, it's the ninety, ninety one, and ninety two that makes it the great car. Uh, that yes, uh, that family of cars. Yeah, yeah. Um, because ninety was uh, a relatively weak year in this country, but um, but it was it was a very striking car as well. And uh, am I right in thinking that because of the uh, the height of the side pods on that car, I never drove a. Uh, Van Diemen RF 90, 91 or 92, but um, some of the smaller drivers had trouble um, seeing in their mirrors or over the side. <laughs> well, they did cut some little kind of um, vestigial kind of windscreens down the side of them, um, didn't they? Uh, in much the same way as Tyrrell did with the, uh, the six-wheeler, because yeah. sitting in a six-wheeler Tyrrell, you can't see the little 10-inch front wheels. And um, once you're on the go, it's actually not an issue. But... Uh, it was useful for placement and actually turning a car into an apex for corner for just the just a tad of a uh, little black uh, tire somewhere and um, so some windscreens were cut in the side of those other cars to contain sort of side windscreens include the uh, was it the chaparral was it the 2j sucker car had sort of lexan clear uh, doors uh, in the side so you could, the driver could sort of look over the side and see where he was very odd another debate anyway but no fascinating and yeah. we've got three wonderful wonderful cars um in that um, in that category um i have to say that uh, have, um i was gonna say i i this you the case you make a very good case for the swift i, I feel uh, it would be harsh not to have a van demon through to the to, to the later stages given their yeah the, the company's the huge impact the world's largest had, uh, producer of production racing cars Absolutely. Yeah. So, do we want the? So, is it the DB1 or the RF90 that goes through to the to the final? Then, do we think? I think the DB1 going to be able to beat a March seven. Yeah, I think that think the DB1 was the most technically advanced, the most innovative uh, Formula Ford, um, one that certainly changed the face of it. Uh, but we can't overlook the fact that Van Diemen, the, the largest series producer of um, of junior single seater race cars. Uh, maintained its position brilliantly and things like um, uh, David Baldwin's um, RF90, so that stealth bomber as it was known, um, is a, a very special machine indeed and I think that probably deserves to go forward in the context of our argument. Um, others will think differently and that's debates what it's all about isn't it? Well, well I don't think differently, I completely agree. Sure. Yeah, I'm very happy to put the RF, uh, RF90 through, um, so there, there it goes. So that, um, uh, we're actually moving slightly back in time then, because the next the next one on the list is the the Reynard eighty four SF, and I think that you've um, you've driven one of these, haven't you, um, Marcus Pies? There's another car in your list of cars you've driven. Yeah, it's been a fairly um, a fairly extensive list. Um, the Reynard eighty four SF was a fantastic car. Um, Adrian Reynard, a great deep thinker, brilliant, brilliant man, um, and he tried to do something different with his Formula Ford 2000s in the early part of the uh, 1980s. The 83 moved things along really, really well, but the 84 was a, a, a much, much better package. 
um, had um, uh, rocker uh, suspension, etc. Uh, quite an interesting uh, car. Um, evolved from those Formula Fords, effectively, that, uh, that Marcus was talking about uh, earlier on at the end of the um, 80s. Uh, but the, the cars were very special. Um, if I was to put a finger on it, probably because they, they worked very, very well pretty much at any angle of incidence going into a corner. Um, you could drive them through a corner um, neatly, uh, you could actually get the back end out as well, and the car would still move forward. Whereas the opposition at the time, um, the Van Diemen's, the, the Argo JM14, if you got a little bit out of line, you lost traction, you lost ground. And the Raynard was a very chuckable car. Um, it wasn't the strongest thing in the world. Uh, it had to be customized by the teams. We're uh, selling like hot cakes, and um, the teams would go in kind of as they did at Van Diemen as well, and they'd build their own cars in the factory, or they'd get the car, and then they'd take it home and strip it all down, and then go through a long program of stiffening it up, strengthening it, making it um, just a, um, a, a better deal. But if you remember, um, I mean, 84 was the greatest year of uh, Formula Ford 2000. I think it was the best, uh, probably the most competitive championship I've ever uh, reported in you had Maurizio Sandro Sala with Magic who won the British Championship the Euro Series was won by Maurizio Guzelman his Brazilian compatriot with Russian Green both in Reynards but also there were the likes of Andy Wallace, Martin Donnelly, um, Julian Bailey, Anthony Reid, um, Tim Davis, um, Gerrit van Cowen was in there as well wasn't he and, and all sorts of great drivers were there the strength in depth that season was absolutely brilliant um but the the, the reynard was the dominant car without doubt anthony reed won a few races in the um, in the argo with john kirkpatrick racing um and um he won at sort of certain types of circuit but the reynard was a a very very good uh, package. I drove sala's car on the grand prix circuit at silverstone in the days when there was not the the infield kind of veil uh, diversion um, after Stowe. And I remember how quick it was through Stowe, but also that if you got it absolutely right, and, and bear in mind, I'm not a professional driver, but um, by the end of the morning, I could take um, club corner absolutely flat in top, which was brilliant. So if you, if you turned in at exactly the right place, kept your nerve, you just touched the curb coming out, it was brilliant. Turn in two feet early, you'd probably run out of road and end up in the barrier. Turn in two feet later, you're probably not going to make the corner particularly well, but you'd sort of scrape round. Um, but a phenomenal car. Um, I say, not the strongest thing. I remember seeing one come back in half after a Donington test day, um, the Dennis Vitolo car um, at uh, Donington. And um, it, uh, uh, it had an, an accident of sorts. Um, not quite sure how he got out of it in one piece, but he was fine. Uh, the car was in two pieces, in two halves on the tow truck, connected by a clutch cable. Uh, mm -hmm. Had a cable clutch on that particular one. And um, they probably took it back and welded it all back together again. And, and he was probably out on it a couple of weeks later. But you had to change the chassis pretty regularly uh, on them. Uh, they flexed. And Adrian would say that stiff chassis was very, very important. 
um, to the way those cars work. But in fact, I think the fact that it worked in wet or dry, sideways or straight, probably meant it wasn't, it was tactically not as stiff as they, they were telling everybody. Um, and certainly the, the work that the teams were doing individually to keep them competitive suggested that um, they needed a lot of upkeep. But uh, it was a brilliant car um, and say so won the championships. Um, what more can you say? It, uh, it went on to become the 86 um, Reynard as well because the 85 was um, um, a, a bucket of junk basically. And um, so they went back to what they knew, just as they'd done, in fact, in 81, uh, because the, the sort of semi-ground effect type um, uh, 80 uh, Reynard uh, was nothing like as good as the 79. Um, if you remember, Martin Brundle drove the 80, uh, Graham Duxbury drove one as well, Frank Bradley had one. But the 80 car, I mean, go back to where we were with the Raltar T3 initially, they were trying to do a wing car type Formula Ford 2000, but not with 160 horsepower of Formula 3, but with 125, 130 horsepower of Formula Ford 2000. And oddly, it didn't work as well as the sort of the more basic um, car that uh, preceded it. And therefore, um, in much the same way as the likes of the great Roger Penske, uh, was never shy about switching marks when his own cars weren't up to the um, up to the beam. Um, the Reynards went back to basics and uh, returned with a, a minor update with their previous car from two years back to continue to do very well in um, in Formula Ford 2000. So uh, yeah, fantastic car and um, the best of um, the best of the bunch, the best Formula Ford 2000 car, um, I think, by a, a country mile. Before we decide whether it goes through or not, I'm going to throw to, to, to other Marcus and say, is it as significant as the next car on our list, which is the Reynard Formula Opal Lotus? So now we're into the debate of multi-mark versus single mark. So where, where, where do you stand on, the, uh, on those two? Well, uh, see, um, I echo a lot of what Marcus was saying about the, um, the Reynard 84 SF, and I was a... I was a massive fan of Formula Ford 2000. Um, whether it was a coincidence or not, that was the really the time when it uh, it kind of became a stepping stone for drivers on their way to Formula One, as opposed to being a category that people who'd been in Formula Ford 1600 for a, for a bit too long and wanted to move up and do something else uh, would do, or or people who perhaps weren't quite good enough to do Formula Three. Um, so around the 83, 84 era is where it really um, became a, a proper stepping stone to F1. And, and Marcus has mentioned the 84 season. Uh, the following year, uh, it was Martin Donnelly against the late veteran Farby. Um, and then in uh, subsequent subsequent years, Mark Blundell against Bertrand Gachot in 86, JJ Leto in 87. So it produced a lot of, of talent, uh, that generation of Reynard Formula 4 2000. And um, the um, the cars were brilliantly chuckable. Um, it was a British Championship, European Championships. The drivers were racing all through the season, and then we had what, in my mind, is some of the greatest racing I've ever seen, which was the uh, BBC Grandstand Winter Series, which is a five-round mini tournament on the uh, Brands Indy circuit at the end of the season, and you see uh, drivers from Formula Ford 1600 moving up and making their slicks and wings debuts. So. Um, so I think it was a really significant car and um, it really, without, 
you, you can you can see the uh, the, the Formula Vauxhall Lotus car, which we're going to discuss of '88, is really very uh, much part of the same family as the uh, the '87 SF Formula Ford 2000 Reynard from from the year before. Funnily enough, it was never called a Reynard, um, the the Formula Vauxhall Lotus car, uh, but Reynard made them uh, from 1988 to uh, to 1991, and uh, and as we've uh, alluded to already, that was the beginning of one make single seater racing and uh, whether that's a good thing or not uh, I, I it was it was certainly viewed as a very radical step at the time seems funny to think it now but um, 32 years ago when it when it was introduced um, it was one make racing at that point was uh, minis or Renault 5 turbos or Metro turbos and stuff like that single seater racing was never one make so uh, um, yeah, we move on to the Vauxhall Lotus, and uh, uh, I really would say the Vauxhall Lotus was probably the more significant car in the history of single-seater racing, junior single-seater racing, because of that. that it was just brought in a new concept, um, and not just with the one-make um, format, um, but uh, also, you know, it was very much um, the brainchild of um, Dan Partell from the European Formula Drivers Association, who'd been running European championships for Formula Ford 2000 and Formula Ford 1600 and Sports 2000 for um, most of the decade before that. And um, Dan Partell had a connection with Bernie Ecclestone, um, which enabled him to get Formula One support slots and and really um, in another way it's the genesis of what we see now with the Bruno Michel championships with FIA Formula Two and FIA Formula Three in the sense that from 88 to around 92-ish um, the European Vauxhall Opal Lotus Championship was predominantly um, supporting Formula One Grand Prix around Europe which obviously made it a better sell for sponsors um, it for the, the grids were absolutely enormous uh, and there was one year where um, they even had to have a, a qualification round at Zolder before the season kicked off to, to weed out um, 10 or so competitors because they just couldn't cope with the amount of paddock space um, that was required to uh, to run them all. Yeah, I'd have to reluctantly, uh, because I have the same same feelings as you guys about the the single mate versus multi mate. But I think being being the first successful one of that type probably means it has to be in in pretty serious uh, contention. Um, and and the next one on the list is can, another. Can we, can we leave that? Just uh, just go on to that Vauxhall thing, the Vauxhall Lotus. I think it's fascinating because. Um, Okay, it was Formula Vauxhall Lotus, it was Formula Opal Lotus and Formula Chevrolet Lotus as well at some point. I think it probably was in South America. Chevrolet um, for the Brazilians. And, and actually from that championship came um, Elio Castro Neves, Tony Canaan and Cristiano de Mata, I think, all in the same year. So, um, and that really that reinforces what you've been saying, absolutely, about its significance. But what was also significant is that the car was a... A very the chassis was a very very different concept uh, from Adrian Reynard. It was it was forward thinking. Um, it had a um, a kind of steel 
uh, frame in it, but down the sides of that frame were what they referred to as, as planks, but they were kind of honeycomb, um, aluminium honeycomb sort of blocks that sort of ran the whole way, rather like a bit of Lego down the side of the, um, uh, of the car. It made them incredibly strong. Um, it was pretty difficult to hurt yourself in one if you had a, a reasonable accident. So I remember um, I, I was driving one years later and somebody came over the top of me at, um, at, at Knockhill um, and his car was absolutely fine. And he continued sort of, I think in the, in the second race later in the day. Um, but they were very interesting um, in their way. Say so it was one make racing, which is not my bag particularly, but the fact that it introduced so many drivers from so many countries and um, it allowed them to compete on a world stage uh, in equal machinery means that it, it has to be right up there under consideration. Yeah, and I did, yeah. um, I, I did put the, the question out on the, um, on the EFTA Facebook group um, today as to, because I, I really uh, couldn't, a figure on how many of them were made of course the, the formula did stumble on right through into the uh, the late 1990s um but um surprisingly low estimate um from a couple of a couple of people um who seem very well informed about this category of around 250 and i would have thought it would be more than that but uh, but the cars were just so solid <laughs> so it's a great it's a great number still and it's a number that's comparable with some of the sort of the best of the crosley formula fords and and things like sort of there were loads and loads and loads of lotus 61s and things like that, almost unfathomably because it's just a repackaged 51 uh with a sort of wedgy body it looked a bit sort of sexier but no not not um not ideal uh but i think very interesting and um say so a, a a stroke of genius from uh, adrian reynard to kind of come up with a concept um, that brought uh, greater safety, um, greater strength. The front suspension had a sort of uh, linked on a, a casting, wasn't it? There was a casting on the front of the chassis again, which gave it an, um, a, an extra level of protection with a frontal impact. The side impact was pretty much taken care of by these planks down the side, the honeycomb uh, aluminium sides that stiffened the whole chassis up. Um, they went through a metamorphosis, didn't they, with a, uh, a later body, which was sort of slipperier, etc. Remember initially they they had they struggled there to turn the cars because the um, I think everything sort of snagged on the wings uh, at the front, but um, got it all sorted, of course. Uh, but there were some days when the older car with different aero um, toppled the uh, the later ones, which was slightly embarrassing. Yeah, it was um, Schubel in Germany who um, who produced them from '92 onwards, and the I never liked the the bodywork uh, that was. I agree with you. As much, I thought the the eighty eight to ninety one bodywork looked, uh, looked far more attractive. Um, uh, ninety two, I think ninety two was good for uh, putting sponsors logos on because it was a, a bit more slappy. <laughs> but uh... <laughs> wasn't it the like? Wasn't it the likes of um, uh, of Martin O'Connell? Um, and Stuart Mosley, people like that, who put the cat among the pigeons by keeping the older style car competitive, and I think even winning races. Yes, it was. Um, it was. It was Wayne Douglas who actually won a race uh, outright in the uh, in the older style car. Uh, that was when it was. Um, I think that was when it was uh, carburetor against fuel injection, wasn't it? That was the. Uh, class oh, that elude, that detail eludes me, but <laughs> uh, greater knowledge. Um, but yeah, Martin was definitely uh, very quick, and uh, he's become a, a, an absolute, you know, probably the fastest 
individual guy in historic racing these days and won at uh, Monaco Historics last time around in a kind of unfancied ATS, uh, which has uh, just underlined how good he is. Right, I'm going to jump in to get us on to the next, uh, next car, which is uh, another Reynard. It's the last Reynard and it's the only F3000 car um, that we've got in our list. The, the 88D, which arrived and won sensationally first time out and uh, then went on to win the championship as well with Roberto Moreno. So is this the, I mean, you covered F3000, didn't you, Marcus, I think, um, during the period as well. Um, is, is that the, I guess it's the remarkable appearance um, sort of first time out that kind of really stands out with this one. It was something that the Reynards tended to do, and they did it in things like they won a race with their very first Formula Ford, but um, they won a race, I think the first race with the Formula Ford 2000, the Formula 3, the Formula 3000, the IndyCar, um, absolutely extraordinary. Um, but again, Formula 3000 at that point was very much multi-mark, and um, you had the, um, the marches, which were kind of on the wane a little by then, I think, um the the rolls were sort of there there were some there were some delaras weren't there sort of at one point in um in in the years when i was covering uh, 3000 kind of 87 particularly um uh, 88 but they were they were fantastic cars and um the likes of roberto moreno who wasn't running on a big budget um did a just an incredible job and the reynards were very much the um, the class of the field and uh, I, I don't know whether they rewrote the rules of Formula 3000 but at the end of the day um, they were prolific winners and uh, and that counts for a lot. Yeah my, my feeling on this Marcus Simmons is that it's a it's a nice mention but it's probably not got the as Marcus Pye mentioned there hasn't really got the sort of groundbreaking or the longevity to really make it through to the latter stages is that is that fair? Yeah, I think you're right. Um, yeah, the Reynard really, uh, yeah, from '88 onwards, uh, were a force all the way through to the last knockings of the um, original concept of Formula 3000 at the end of 1995 when uh, Vincenzo Sospiri won the championship. Um, but um, by that stage, Formula 3000 was just becoming horrendously expensive, um, and uh, and regrettably, another category that had to uh, go down the one-make route for 96. Um, even more regrettably, with uh, if we were going to do a podcast on the ugliest junior single-seater of all time, uh, we could well uh, include that first-generation one-make Lola Formula 3000 uh, from 96. But, uh, but yeah, so um, the Reynard... <clears throat> um, it, we have we should be including Formula Three Thousand for discussion, but I can't see uh, any individual Formula Three Thousand car that would go through to our final. As a little aside, um, I remember Roberto Moreno testing um, on the Silverstone Grand Prix circuit, and if I'm if I'm right in what I recall, he was out at the same in, in sort of very typical of the era mixed test sessions, etc. And he said, Andy Rouse in a, uh, in a Sierra Cosworth RS500 came past him in a straight line because the, the 3000 car made um, quite a lot of downforce. Uh, and um, the 
uh, RS500 had about 560 brake at that point, which was significantly in advance of the Reynard, uh, he said. But the really good thing was that um, Andy Rouse had to brake at about the 100 metre mark for Stowe and he didn't bother. So he went straight back past it. But he said it was uh, very much an eye opener. Um, and this from uh, uh, Roberto Moreno, who I remember so fondly across so many categories. But I first remember meeting him at Silverstone when um, he'd first come over to the UK and he was a, a bit of an auto electrician and um, Autosport had managed to beg, borrow, blag, whatever, a sort of fairly elderly motorhome, just sort of a base for the weekend, and its generator wouldn't work. And then someone realised that uh, the Moreno knew what he was talking about with auto-electrics, and he, being a tiny little fellow, he sort of curled up in this sort of little box where the generator was on the side of the motorhome, and within kind of, you know, half an hour or so, had got it going, and, uh, you know, hats off to him. <laughs> multi-talented <laughs> yeah exactly multitasking and who says blokes can't do it <laughs> um so the the, the next uh we're going to come up with a, a pair of uh, of cars um, and this both marcus Simmons, you came up with both of these so i'm going to challenge you to talk about them and then pick one as your favorite or, or maybe neither to go through but the delara 393 and the f308 uh <laughs> so yes talk us what talk us through why you've you've chosen those two I chose the the 393 and because that was the model Delara that completely uh, made the British market realise that uh, the Delara was by far the best car. So um, up until we've spent a lot of this podcast talking about Rolton Reynard and um, up until uh, the, the early 1990s, it was uh, pretty much a Rolt v Reynard battle. Um, and the uh, the 92 championship had been won by Gilles de Ferran in the uh, Reynard one by Paul Stewart, uh, run by Paul Stewart Racing. So, um, 93, it was um, the, the Richard Arnold developments team who took a punt on a, uh, a Delara for, for um, Warren Hughes, um, who was their uh, quicker driver. And uh, uh, it soon became uh, evident that this was the car to have. Um, and um, by mid-season, Paul Stewart Racing, Eden Bridge, West Surrey, Alan Docking, Fortec, they were all running. Um, they were all running Delara's. It completely, completely changed the market, um, and which we'd already been seeing to a lesser ex um, extent in the uh, continental European countries in the um, in the uh, earlier years of the 90s, but the. But the 2008 car I brought in, um, yeah, by this by this stage, um, Formula Three had had almost become one make, although it wasn't quite. Uh, there was some opposition um, in the 2008. Delara had the Miguel, uh, for example. So so there was scope for competition. So Delara had to had to have their wits about them because uh, they couldn't just be complacent and and build a build a rubbish car, um, because they would they lose their market probably as quickly as they gained it so um and the reason why i've put the 08 um delara is because it had a four-year lifespan and um, so it was 2008 to 2011 um before um before the rules changed for um for 2012 the fia introduced new safety regulations for 2012 the new generation of formula three cars um which um Obviously, we want cars to be as safe as possible, but they, um, it did mean that um, 
the uh, the 2012 and onwards generation of Galara, uh, which was the, the last of the old philosophy of Formula 3 until um, the new one make concept was introduced. Um, but it was a little bit not quite as felt as the 08, the, the gearbox, the gearbox in the 12 was um, was for a for a bigger car, and it was a it, it, the cockpit was a bit higher. So the 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 08 to 11 cars, the um, the lap records that those cars had set actually stayed for quite a long time through the um, 2012 generation of car. And I've just I've got a list of drivers who who was successful in the 08 Delara here. We've got Hulkenberg, Mortara, Bianchi, Bottas, Sims, Mary, Hartley, Marco Bittman, Antonio Felix da Costa, Vantor, Rosenfist, Algasuari, Sergio Perez, Marcus Ericsson, um, Max Chilton, Daniel Ricciardo, Jean-Eric Venn, Collado, Felipe Nazaro, Kevin Magnussen, Jack Harvey. I mean, that, that's a fantastic group of um, drivers that came through um, over a four-year period. I have to say, they, it coincided with me covering British GT, and of course they were on the same package. Mm. Uh, and they they were phenomenally quick pieces of kit as well, proper aero cars, not not so cumbersome as say the current FIF three car, which obviously uh, was a GP three car. Yeah, these are more live, agile, proper, lightweight, developed racing cars. So um, yeah, as I say, I prefer my flame spitting Dodge Vipers, but they they were pretty they were pretty impressively quick when you go and watch a qualifying session. I have to say. Yeah, and, and actually, if it, um, we're, we're obviously talking about our, um, our greatest uh, car, um, but if you want, if you want to uh, talk about the greatest individual chassis in junior single-seater history, it could well be uh, Delara F308 chassis 16, which, uh, which was uh, sold to Carlin for the 2008 season, um, and Jaime Algasuari won the British Championship in 2008. Um, Jean-Eric Venn used that same car to win the 09 championship. Uh, Daniel Ricciardo used that same car to win the 2010 championship. And Felipe Nazareth used the same car to win the 2011 championship. So <laughs> um, that's uh, an unbelievable... <laughs> yeah, it's, fair, it's fair to say that they uh, amortised the cost of, uh, of that one very, very well. Is that the one that's hanging on the wall in Carlin's... Um, <laughs> Yeah. Um, reception area. Yes, that, that yeah. is. Yeah, it's. I'm. I can't add anything to to what you guys, who are real experts in that era, say about that. Other than, I was hugely impressed by the way that Giampaolo Dallara and his company got their act together because they've been around. He's been around in racing for ever such a long time, decades. But in the years when uh, they were building. Um, the form first Formula 3000 cars, 87, whatever, was an absolute truck. Um, it was massive and uh, rather like um, one of the early 90s Rolls that sort of kind of would do as a 3000 chassis as well as a Formula 3. Um, and you saw things like the, um, the Lola, the first Lola Formula 3000 in 85 that was effectively an IndyCar tub with a sort of junk of it hacked away. You almost imagine them, they could have actually hinged them at the front and had the, the, the 3000 Lola could have had 3000 marches coming out of the back, maybe two or three of them. Uh, and similar with the, uh, that first um, Delara that, that doubled as the, 
it's the sort of the, the Muleta Formula One car at the beginning of 88, unfathomably. But we first saw the Dolores, didn't we, in, um, uh, in Formula Three, sort of bit part players with the sort of likes of Rafael Real de Sarte, people like that, didn't we? That's right, yeah. Um, racing, I think, wasn't it? Uh, tech Speed, wasn't it, I think? It was it Tech Speed? And um, ran that car uh, in 1988 but without success. And uh, to be fair, Rafael um, probably didn't have the uh, the right level of experience to get the most out of it because he'd come straight from uh, from Formula First. Um, and uh, and But also a decade earlier, I, I remember seeing uh, Bobby Rahal um, driving in the British Grand Prix support race in, uh, in what was then called the Wolf Delara. Um, I remember it. So I think that that's probably the first Delara F3 car. Um, yeah, the, um, the, they were sort of the, the Delara. Um, there was also the, the very closely matched um, Emiliani, which was a similar thing. Uh, and also Kiran Bovi in Belgium built some, uh, a, I think a couple of his own Bovi Formula 3 cars, which bought the corners from Italy, but then made the tubs themselves in Belgium, as I discovered only last week. <laughs> well, I think, I think we, you know, Delara's place in the, in the, in the market is, you know, it, it, you, can't, you can't argue with it. They're everywhere. I think the only thing they can't win in at the moment is LMP2. Um, so the single-seaters, they are, they are the, the firm, aren't they? So I'm, I'm leaning towards the 393 on the basis of it, it kick-starting an entire sort of a multiple generations of different categories for Delara. Um, but, but Mark Simmons, I think I'll let you have the last say on this one as the, as the, as the Delara expert and this particular period and suggesting those. Are you happy with the 393? Um, yeah, I, I'd, I'd say probably, probably the 08 uh, to me was the ultimate car, but, the, uh, but you're right, the 93, if we're talking about a car that um, had a significant influence on the motorsport industry, I would say that <clears throat> without that uh, particular Delara and that era of Delara, um, we wouldn't now see, or, or we may not now see Delara supplying all the cars for FIA Formula 2, FIA Formula 3, Indy Lights uh, and the like. So uh, Super Formula, of course, in Japan. So uh, yeah, it's from that genesis that we now see what we, what we have today. Yeah, it's, it's, it's gone through. And we've got another. We've got another sort of doubling up uh, for the next one, which is two Tatus entries. One's the sort of a, a similar sort of debate, I suppose. The RC ninety five ninety six, which you suggested, um, Marcus, and, and and the Formula Renault two thousand, which is the car that lasted for a decade. Um, so its its significance in terms of the drives that have been through it is is another high, you know, another high scorer. So similar question for you on those two. Yeah, I mean, I. I am. I'm going to go back to uh, a very clear wintry day at a, a small track called Ledenon in the south of France, and uh, the other Marcus was there with me, um, and we had been invited by Renault UK to track test various offerings from the various Formula Renault constructors, and um, because at that time uh, the the category had been relaunched, um, out had gone the old 1700cc engines <clears throat> and, um, and, it, and it was now a two litre category um, and they uh, Renault UK brought the two Marcuses from the UK they, uh, and um, 
Renault Germany, um, Renault Italy, etc. They'd brought journalists as well. And that was the first time I clapped my eyes on a Tatus and wow, it just looks incredible. Um, it had, um, I mean, it, we, we kind of take it for granted recently and, and now I, I don't really like this particular styling thing on racing cars because I just think it's used too much. But it was the first time I'd seen a proper shark fin on a junior single season. <laughs> and, uh, and it just looked the most beautiful piece of kit. Um, and um, because I'm uh, because I'm considerably uh, taller than the the other Marcus, when uh, when he drove it, I remember him um, uh, finishing his five or six laps and uh, and still sitting in the cockpit, um, looking up at me and saying, "There's no way you're going to fit into this unless you're double jointed." <laughs> <laughs> I've done the same thing. I, I couldn't fit in um, um, one of the other, the Alpa. Um, that was a really um, strange driving position, and um, I was kind of wedged into that. Uh, must because I'm fatter than you. Uh, <laughs> uh, shorter. But um, no, absolutely fascinating. Do you remember those, some of those test days? We had such good fun on. I think the Ermoli was there as well, and uh, drove a whole bunch of cars. But I remember just casting back to the Formula um, Vauxhall Lotus, Opal Lotus. Um, went down to Poanos, a little test track up in the hills above the town of Po, and um, we had a wonderful time. They brought Derek Bell down as the sort of the superstar guest who was going to uh, introduce everybody, all the journos, to this car. And um, they sort of then said to the assembled multitude, well, how many of the rest of you have done the racing? And I think Richard Young from Northern Ireland and myself stuck our, our hands up and they said, right, well, we've got three cars, so you two go out with Derek. Um, give it a good sort of battle on track and run around, overtake each other. But don't take each other off, because we haven't got any more of them. So we had about 15 minutes charging round uh, like lunatics. It was absolutely brilliant. I remember uh, we went back later on in the afternoon to the airport, and um, I was with Derek, and, um, uh, and, and Derek put his, uh, his race bag on the, on the counter to check in. And the lady said, don't oh, so what's in here? He said, oh, um, uh, you should just be pilot de course, you know, I'm, I'm a racing driver. And she said, oh, we you know, kind of, you know, in French, we've been successful. We gagné le Mont cinq fois. And she was very impressed, <laughs> as, as will we all, of course, and sharing the track with Derek. But uh, no, brilliant. And, uh, you know, some, some happy days when we could go back and, uh, go out and have a play. I remember the day in, in, in Lebanon very well, really crisp, cold but sunny day um, up in the mountains and uh, yeah, happy days. Yeah, I mean, and, and sure enough that 95 Tatus went on to win that year's European Championship with Enrique Bernaldi um, and then and I remember because um, the British Formula Renault at that stage was still very much Van Diemen and Swift Mm. although um, uh, Martello were running Miguel's so they they were a little bit brave um, uh, choosing choosing a French car um, but <clears throat> I um, remember in early 96 um, David Cook uh, calling me up at the uh, in the office to say oh we've just uh, we've just uh, bought a couple of Tattuses and I was thinking right well this is going to be interesting and uh, and sure enough um, uh, David Cook ended up um, winning that year's UK Championship in, in the Paula, and, and from uh, from then on, 
Tata's just completely dominated the market the same way as Delara um, had done a few years earlier in Formula 3. Um, so that was the significant car, I think. But um, for 2000, um, Renault Sport in France <clears throat> decided that Formula Renault was going to follow everything else and go one make, um, which didn't really make too much difference because there wasn't too much opposition to the Tatas uh, by that stage anyway. Um, and they, they gave the contract to Tatas um, and the FR2000 uh, car, as it became known, uh, ran all the way through to the end of 2009 uh, with some updates, um, launched a complete generation of Formula One stars who came through it, and Tatus produced over a thousand of them, um, wow. which is just uh, an absolutely incredible, uh, incredibly significant car, as far as as far as I'm concerned. You know, the first the first championship in 2000 in the UK was won by Kimi Raikkonen, uh, and then you know, obviously we had Lewis Hamilton winning the UK championship in 03 by the end of the decade. Um, across Europe, it was people like Ricardo, Bottas, Vernier, um, winning, winning titles. So um, you know, there, there is hardly a driver uh, who was up and coming in Europe in the, in the, first, gener in the first decade of this millennium who didn't drive that car. Uh, and for that reason, I, I think uh, it's, uh, it's, it deserves to be right up there. I, I agree. I think the FR2000 has to be just um, a decade with fairly minor tweaks, I think. It's still pretty recognisable by the end from what happened in the beginning. And of course, when they did finally replace it, that didn't go terribly well, um, did it? So they, they replaced <laughs> a hard it. Hard car to replace. With the Barazi Epsilon. Uh, and uh, yeah, it turned turned into a bit of a bit of a disaster, really. Um, and they, they did get that car working. But uh, Sure enough, after a couple of years, Tata's got the uh, the deal back again, and uh, carried on until the end of uh, until they uh, went for the new regional F3 concept. They were they were so well geared up for all that. We know making so many cars, and let's not forget it also formed the basis of the Formula Toyota car, um, mm. which has run in New Zealand for such a long time. And um, I recall going to New Zealand in two thousand and six. Uh, and the guy who was running the championship, Barry Tomlinson, who I'd seen racing in Atlantic when I first went in uh, 90 into 91, said, oh, why don't you come down to, um, to Manfield at Palmerston North to uh, have a go in the Toyota car? So absolutely, you know, never look a gift horse in the mouth, come on down. <laughs> so I went down there and, and wanged it round for, uh, for half an hour or so. And uh, the guy um, teaching me how to drive the car and doing a fantastic job with none other than the young Brendan Hartley, who was about 15 or something at the time, and um, of course went on to significantly greater things. And uh, we joked about it at one of the Goodwood Festivals of Speed later on, and uh, yeah, it was a happy day. It's fantastic, but a great car based on that uh, uh, Renault. Absolutely. I think, um, I think that's the, that uh, gets us a tatters into the four. We've got seven now, actually, seven, seven final cars. So really the final question then is, if the if the if the fight the current Formula Four Tatus deserves to go through as well, I suspect it might be a bit soon for us to be able to put that through, um, Marcus Simmons. But I know that you're quite a fan of this. Of I, this car. 
yeah i would say if we were doing this podcast in 10 years time we we might uh, we might put it through so uh <clears throat> the it was launched for the 2014 season first year of fia formula four and um it was um it was just an italian championship that year but then um uh the, the german championship started 15 they were using the tatus um and with also the smp northern european championship and the spanish have used the tatus so there's a winter series in the uae um, that uses it as well um and powered by the abarth um, turbo engine um in all those championships it's um it is uh renowned as an excellent car um at that level and it's also of course the basis for uh, what's our current british f3 championship car um which is um is it, it is the tatas f4 chassis beefed up considerably quite a few modifications done uh, <clears throat> on the watch of msv with them um, uh, and obviously com a completely different engine as well a lot more power um so um yeah i've got a yeah, I've got a little list here. The first couple of drivers through to Formula One from that uh, from that Tatas F4 car um, are Lance Stroll uh, and Lando Norris, because because Norris, it's easy to forget that he did um, quite a few German and Italian rounds um, in 2015 while he was um, also doing the winning the British Championship. We've got um, four of the Ferrari juniors currently in FIA Formula Two um, have raced that Tatas um, and. Of the current FIA Formula 3 grid, um, 30, 30 cars. Um, and so of those 30 drivers who started this season, 25 of them have raced that Tatus. Um, and um, a couple of them were in British F3 trim, uh, Clem Novelak and uh, Cameron Das, but, um, but the rest um, have all raced it in F4 form. And, and if you're talking about a significant car, um, one that uh, really a, a majority of a generation uh, goes through before they um, head on their way to the top of the sport. And uh, I think the Tata Set 4 car is going to be that car um, from the last few years. Um, on the downside, um, I don't like the sound of the engine, 1400cc turbo, it's a bit like there. <laughs> and <laughs> um, it's a lovely looking car. Um, but um, I just thought it should be uh, it should be uh, saluted if you like um i th as far as i know i think about 200 uh, around 250 have been made so far so you know we're talking about a really significant car and um, probably have another year or two of use um, so we we're going to be going halo in um in fia formula 4 next year i think it was going to be well, that's been put on hold by uh, coronavirus so so doubtless there'll be some more really really top talents come through before that car's finished yeah so i won for the future as you say when we can we can have this debate again in a few years time yeah. and bring it in then yeah it's, it's the latest 51 of formula four really <laughs> <laughs> so that brings us to the final grouping and we've done well with our manufacturers that are represented we've got brabham bt6 march 782 rolt rt3 van diemen rf90 the Reynard Formula Opal Lotus, the Dallara 393, and the Tatus FR2000. So I reckon the main junior single-seater constructors of the last 70-odd uh, years are pretty well represented. Um, I'm going to immediately throw in 
say that, that, that the 782 is almost certainly the coolest. Um, and then that scores high on the fever rating. And the two most significant that are jumping out at me are the, are the FR2000 Tatus and the Reynard from Local Lotus. Um, are there any others that we should be putting alongside those three? Do you think the RT3 perhaps? Marcus Pye? What, what, what? Yeah, I, I think the RT3 um, had a, a greater effect on motor racing as a whole than the 782, um, in that there were only, uh, what, 28 or so 782s, uh, and there were probably, I don't know, several hundred um, RT3s. On the way, looking down the list, when we come to the Delara and the Tatters, uh, they're both up there in big numbers, as is the um, the, the Vauxhall uh, Lotus as well. So, you know, those cars all had huge significance, and that's what we're looking at, aren't we? We're looking at an overall uh, effect, uh, rather than what might on its day have been the greatest production car of them all or whatever. Um, it's it's their significance to, to motor racing as a whole, and, and the others would get it. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. If you're looking at significance, then I guess that, that would discount the 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 BT6, um, sort of an honourable mention from Formula Junior, and uh, and as you say, the probably the 782 and probably even the RF90. So, oh, it's uh, it's, it's an interesting one. It's probably also worth pointing out that the uh, the RT3 uh, Formula Three car, uh, it was <clears throat> it was uh, versions of that completely dominated uh, American single-seater racing at the same time. The RT4 Formula Atlantic and the RT5 Formula Super V, they were, they were very much the same car um, as the RT3. So um, it was uh, a completely um, dominant car of its era at that, at that tier of the sport. It was revolutionary, wasn't it? It just totally changed the, the look um, of the class, it changed the complexion of the class in that it became all pervading, all dominant, and um, the fact that it went on through significantly in terms of full years as competitive cars, 81, 82, 83, 84, um, and provided the the final push to get Stephanie Hansen that uh, 1980 title as well. Um, massively significant and, and, and Ron Toronek say uh, a guy who had given us sensational production racing cars from uh, from kind of 1961 Formula uh, Junior the MRD uh, right through um, to the certainly the end of the Rolt era um, I think it's got to be their meriting consideration I'm I'm leaning towards it being an RT3 versus Tassus FR2000 finale, just because I think a decade of surely the target of a junior single seater is to launch is to launch drivers' careers, uh, and and the 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 Tassus has surely done you know with with over a thousand made it's surely done that more than any other single design that we've talked about, uh, but it is a single make. Whereas the RT3 obviously came through the, you know, from a, 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 the multi-make uh, time, which I think we all agree is, is more preferable from an enthusiast watching the different cars. So uh, I, I'm feeling it's one of those two. Marcus Simmons, would, do, would you agree with that? Do you think it's between those two? And if so, which one do you, uh, what are you going to go for? I would say so. Um, <clears throat> and my preference 
and I, I, it's really, really difficult for me to split them as far as significance and number of careers launched um, is concerned. Because uh, yeah, we, we were talking about we were talking about Formula Three, but then if you talk about the the RT five Super V and RT four Atlantic, um, and it was the same car really. Um, the RT5 was pretty much the same because they were on the water-cooled um, VW Golf engines by then, so yeah. the chassis were very, very similar. Yeah, but, but you're talking about a whole generation of IndyCar drivers as well. Yes. yes. So my my uh, splitting hairs judgment, I would probably go for the RT3 just because it uh, had to corner the market. Um, and had to prove itself the best car year by year, which it did for several years on um, different continents. Um, whereas Tatus were given a contract, did it absolutely brilliantly. Nobody found any fault with the car for a decade, um, but there was no competition. So, so for me, um, so for me, it has to be the RT3. I think that's absolutely fine and absolutely fair. Um, the RT3 was a wonderful piece of kit. Of course, arguably, it's the car that uh, effectively started uh, one make racing by default because it was so much better than anything else in terms of in its Formula 3 spec over here. Um, so the RT4s and RT5s were brilliant bits of kit as well, uh, which were very, very closely related. And, um, you know, really, if you look at that um, and look at the the other car that sort of came out of that era was the RT2 Formula 2 car. Let's not forget that begat Rory Burns Tolman, which 40 years ago uh, this year won the European Formula 2 Championship in the hands of Brian Henton um, and was, uh, was second with Derek Warwick as well. So, you know, it has significant influence, that whole family of cars. And uh, the recently departed Ron Taranak, I, I do think, deserves to be uh, a king of junior uh, racing heralded by ourselves because he was at its pinnacle and evolving uh, innovative cars which were very very successful um, through the 60s uh, and 70s and 80s um, and that's one hell of a, um, a time to serve at the coalface uh, when you can be found out very very quickly and uh, and he wasn't. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure because he's a very nice chap, um, Gianfranco De, De Bellis, the, uh, the, the, the top man at Tatus would probably completely agree with that. <laughs> well, there we go then. I think we've, um, we've, we've reached a conclusion. The Rolt RC3 is the uh, Autosport's greatest junior single-seater um, of all time. So, um, uh, and, and that does seem quite appropriate, as you say, with Ron Toranac um, dying fairly recently. Um, uh, it's a nice, uh, I think a nice, nice tip of the hat to him as well. So, um, let us know what, what you think on social media or email us at allsport at allsport.com. What, what car would you have gone for? Did we forget? Did we forget one? It seems unlikely with the two Marcuses we've got here. I think we've probably got our bases covered, but do, uh, do let us know if you have any other thoughts. Um, so I'd just like to finish by, by thanking Marcus Bay and Marcus Simmons, um, for some fascinating insights there and incredible levels of knowledge. And um, it's been a, a pretty interesting journey, I think, through Junior Single Seaters. So I hope you've enjoyed it and, and thank you very much indeed.
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Meet Charlie. She loves dogs. Guilty. She powers her pup empire with Shopify. The sales won't stop. With Charlie's tech needs sorted, she can focus on turning her home business into a global operation. Yes, boy. Join Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses worldwide. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.co.uk slash green. Go to shopify.co.uk slash green to start selling online today. Sports Social Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.